Turn, if you will, to Exodus chapter 15. <coughs> Finally, today we return to our study of the book of Exodus, looking at chapter 15, verses 1 to 21 this morning. This has been a long time coming, Exodus 15. We took a little break back during Advent. Then I took a little break to go to Florida. And then we came back and had some weather days. And then threw in a Sunday to install our new elders. And then last week we had the Lord's Supper. And finally, this morning, we return to Exodus after many, many weeks. But we come back to a very interesting section. I found this to be a rather difficult section, frankly, and the fact that I started working on it way back when, I kind of developed a mental block about it, and that I had to kind of punch through to uh, get here this morning. When I have that uh, trouble, I'm often looking around to see how everybody else has done it. I have quite a little list bookmarked on my computer of people who have preached, uh, people who I trust to preach through different uh, passages of Scripture, and there's one pastor that I know that has preached through Exodus, and so I'm always happy to see what he has to say, and so I quickly ran to see his, uh, his, his website and see his sermons, and he goes Exodus chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 16 and 17, and I said, whoa, wait, Michael, what about chapter 15? I guess he had trouble too, I don't know. <coughs> But this section is just too important to skip. And indeed, in Jewish tradition, this is an extremely important part of the Old Testament. Goran Larson, in a book on Exodus that I read, says, This song is recited in the synagogue as the congregation stands in adoration in a way done only at the reading of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath on which it is read is called the Sabbath of Song and has a particularly solemn character. Oh, we can't skip passages like that, can we? So let's give attention to this Song of Moses, which is commonly called the Song of the Sea. It's worthy of our attention, albeit somewhat belated. Let me read it. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has highly exalted the horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. He is my Father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger, consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging water stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed at the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them, sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic and holiness, awesome and glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble 
Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the, into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israel, Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her. With tambourines and dancing, Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. <coughs> this morning I'd like to suggest to you three truths that I think this text presses upon us. And the first is this, that God destroys his enemies. God destroys his enemies. In teaching the Bible over the years, I've come upon uh, several occasions when the, when the concept of the fear of the Lord has come up. And every time it comes up, the same thing happens. Someone wants to make sure that we all understand that the fear of the Lord does not mean that we're afraid of God. Well, yes and no. It is certainly true that God's grace to us in Christ casts out fear. But it is also true that the Lord is someone to be afraid of. For he utterly destroys those who set themselves against him. No one can stand in his way. Now, in case there's any question in our mind about that, this text spells out clearly that God defeats his enemies. In this case, the enemies are the Egyptians, who had held God's people captive as slaves and had opposed God to his face when he ordered them to be released. We can hear their opposition to God's saving work as it's described in verse 9. Though God had clearly and repeatedly demanded that Pharaoh let my people go. Listen again to the boast that uh, Moses records for us on the part of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They said, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. Oh, no, it won't. God will utterly destroy you. For God defeats his enemies. Notice the powerful, picturesque language used here to describe the Lord's victory. In the first half of this passage, as we look down through it in verse 1 and again in verse 4, it says, he hurls them into the sea. In verse 6 and 7, he throws them down. He shatters his enemies. In verse 7, he unleashes his burning anger and consumes them, burns them up like stubble. In verse 12, he stretches out his sovereign right hand and causes the earth to swallow them alive. Oh, make no mistake. God destroys his enemies. 
Clearly, it's the Lord alone who is described here as the great warrior. Moses is the leader of this people as they come out of Egypt, and Moses is the one writing this account, but Moses is never even mentioned. It was not Moses who fought this battle, nor this ragtag band of Hebrew slaves with no weapons and no training. God destroyed his enemies. As Terence Fretheim notes, not a single instrument of human warfare is mentioned. The sword that Pharaoh draws is not opposed by another sword. The chariot that he rides is not met by another chariot. The army that he leads clashes with no human fighting force. But the defeat of the Hitlerian horde is total. For you see, God fights against them. God fights with the weapons that he created, the wind and the sea, and the depths of the earth. Now we're not inclined to think of God as a mighty warrior. We quickly want to point out that Jesus came as the Lamb of God, not something very ferocious. Oh, but everywhere in the Bible, God is the mighty one, the awesome, terrifying warrior. He's portrayed as Not just the lamb. He's portrayed as the lion of Judah. He's a holy, consuming fire. He is God of absolute and just vengeance. He's the judge of all the earth. He brought the flood to destroy the ancient world when they turned away from him. He rained fiery brimstone down on Sodom in all its perversity. He caused the earth to open and swallow Korah when he defied and rebelled against God. He commanded the utter obliteration of the wicked Amalekites. Men, women, children, animals, everything. God destroys his enemies. In fact, if you leave verse 4 out, which speaks specifically of the Egyptians, this passage could be applied to any enemy that stands in the way of the Lord at any time. You see, it's only against this backdrop. It's only when we understand the fierce, unrelenting justice of God. Only when we understand that no wickedness can stand in his presence. It is only then that we can understand the significance of Jesus, of God the Son becoming the Lamb of God. A sacrificial lamb to be slain, to make atonement and satisfy the justice of God who destroys the wicked. Folks, this is the basis of our salvation as it was the basis of Israel's. The Egyptians were destroyed in order that Israel might be saved. And now we read that God has destroyed the evil one that we might be saved. That's what we read of Christ in Colossians 2. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. And we know that he triumphed. We sing about it. We sing about his victory over his enemies every Easter morning. The strife is over. The battle is done. The victory of life is won. The song of triumph has begun. The powers of death have done their worst, but Christ, their legions, has dispersed. Let shouts of holy joy outburst. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God destroys his enemies and the resurrection proves it. 
This morning I would challenge your views of God. Be careful that you've not created a nice, tame God made in your own image. One who would certainly inspire you to do better, but would never, ever punish anyone or wouldn't hurt a flea. The God of the Bible is not tameable. The God of the Bible is not tameable. He is holy. Wickedness incurs his wrath. He is absolutely just. He punishes the disobedient. He is sovereign. He crushes any rebel. We have no more chance of survival against this God than did Pharaoh with his army. God destroys his enemies. So this morning I tell you, we must run to Jesus for refuge. He's our only hope. For on the day that God destroys the wicked, what hope do we have except that Jesus took the punishment in our place? And God will destroy his enemies. Then there's a second truth, beginning especially about verse 13. And this truth is this, that the Lord will bring us home. The Lord will bring us home. Most of us at one time or another have wished that we could see what lies ahead in life. And then sometimes when trouble overwhelms us, we realize what a blessing it was to not have known what was coming. I mean, who would ever have, cho who would ever have children, for example? if we could see what it was going to mean. But then again, who's sorry that they had children? Ah, but God knows everything that's coming. He sees the blessings and he also sees the trouble that lies ahead. But through it all, the Lord promises to bring us home. That's what we find in verses 13 to 18. The Hebrews are rejoicing that Egypt is behind them. Oh, but little do they know what lies ahead. Hostile nations who want to destroy them. Edom and Moab who don't even want the Hebrews walking down the road, traveling through their land. The Canaanites whose land the Lord had promised to Abraham, they're not going to give it up without a fight. The Philistines who would trouble Israel for generations and generations to come. Little do they know the trouble that lies ahead. Indeed, when they come to Canish Barnea, which was to be the entryway into the land of Canaan, and they send the spies up and they're allowed to see a little bit of the trouble, as well as the blessing, but a little bit of the trouble that lies ahead, their faith falters and they're too weak and they refuse to go. But God promises to bring them home. First, we see it in three ways here. First, in verse 13, we're reminded of God's hesed. Actually, it translates it here. Um, in your unfailing love. 
This is um, the Hebrew word is hesed. It's one of God's wonderful character traits. Hesed is unfailing loyalty. He lovingly keeps his promises. So the people he has redeemed out of Egypt will certainly be brought into the promised land. God will finish what he started. And that's his promise to us as well. In Philippians 1, we read, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And in Romans 5, we read, If and we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God keeps his promise. Secondly, in verses 14 to 16, we're reminded that what God has done in the past, he can do again. These Hebrews had seen God totally trush, crush the Egyptians, who were the greatest military power on earth. So these little countries of Edom and Moab and Canaan and Philistia, they were not going to be problems for the Lord. Indeed, these verses tell us that these nations will tremble and anguish will grip them, and they will be terrified and seized with trembling. They will melt away with fear. Terror and dread will fall upon them until they seem to be as dead as a rock. What God has done, he is able to do again. And in fact, that's what he did. You remember the incident when they went up and Rahab was there? And um, uh, she reports to them what uh, the attitude was in Canaan as they saw God's people, the Hebrews, approaching. And she says, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen upon us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. You see, the Lord is able to do whatever it takes to bring his people home. And then thirdly, in verse 17, we're reminded of God's intentions. He brought his people out of Egypt, not just to set them free wandering in the desert, but that they might worship him. He will bring them into the land that he has promised them as their inheritance, a land where he will dwell in their midst, and a land where he will establish his sanctuary, his holy place. And that's exactly what God did for Israel. After their wilderness experience, he brought them into the land of Canaan that he had promised Abraham. He blessed them and they became a great nation. And always right in the middle of them was the tabernacle, later the temple, where the Lord dwelt, the sanctuary of his presence. The Lord faithfully brought them home. Dear people, God's promise to us is not much different. It's just greater. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me and my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you back to be with me. That where I am, there you may be also. 
Our Savior is preparing an eternal home, and he knows everything that stands between where we are today and that home. He knows all the trouble. In fact, Jesus warns us. I've told you this thing, these things. He says that in me you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have lots of trouble. Take heart. I've overcome the world. In other words, I am able to bring you home. Well then, before we quit, there's a third thing we should learn from this text. And that is simply this. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Let's put ourselves in the place of these Hebrew people for a moment. It's been quite an unbelievable experience. It's been a while since we talked about it, but if we kind of review what's just happened in the preceding chapters, they ate the Passover meal as God had commanded them, putting the blood on the doorpost and uh, gathering their families. And then during the night an outcry began as the angel of death passed through Egypt and the firstborn sons were being killed in the Egyptian homes. And suddenly the Hebrews were all leaving. They were, the, the, the Egyptians were begging them to go, get out of here, go, go, we don't want you here anymore. And so they began to leave, and yet before they knew it, here comes the Egyptian army chasing them down to kill them and pin them between the sea and the army in a hopeless situation. But during the night, the Lord protected them, and a great wind began to blow, and God parted the sea. And so they began to walk through on dry ground. Oh, but before they know it, they look back and here come the Egyptians with their chariots and their horses and their armor and their spears and their swords coming after them. But then suddenly God closes the waters back together. Things return to normal and the Egyptian army is caught in the midst of the sea, drowning. And now these Hebrew people stand on the seashore looking at the disastrous results, bodies and mangled chariots floating in the water and lying on the beach. Must have looked like the aftermath of the Asian tsunami. Rubble and bodies everywhere. And standing there, it must have been overwhelming. After 400 years in Egypt, here we are, free. After, after a, a, a couple of days of terror, as we thought they were going to catch us and destroy us, here we are alive, and there they are dead. What a sight. How do you respond? What do you do? How would you respond? Well, here by their example, we see... Moses sat down and wrote some lyrics, and he and the people began to sing. They began to sing. And Moses' sister, Miriam, found her tambourine and began to lead the women, and they too sang and danced, apparently singing responsively with what Moses and the other group were singing, because the, the songs start just alike. What a sight. There on the beach, thousands of people, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people, singing and playing tambourines and dancing with joy. Is that how you would respond? Here we see by their example, we are to sing to the Lord. 
Now, this is not an isolated uh, response. Throughout the Bible, we find this happens lots of times. When God provided water later in the wilderness, we read about it in Numbers, the people sang to the Lord. When Deborah and Barak lead God's people to victory in Judges chapter 5, they sing a song to the Lord. When God delivered David from his enemies in 2 Samuel, he sings songs of praise to the Lord. When God heard Hannah's prayer for a son, she sang a song of praise to the Lord. When John the baptizer were born, was born, Zechariah, his father, composed a song to sing to the Lord. When Mary realized that the Messiah was conceived in her, she wrote a song to sing to the Lord. And when Jesus rose from the dead and the church began together, and for 2,000 years since then, we have sung songs of praise to the Lord. Other religions do all kinds of things with music in many strange ways. They use it. But Christians write hymns of praise and sing to the Lord. Is that what you do? Do you sing? I know some theology students who have no time for music, have no time for singing. They just don't care about such petty things. Those people scare me. You see, these great acts of God by which we are saved are not just facts for analysis and discussion. They're not even just commands, laws to be obeyed. God, by his mighty hand, has brought us salvation. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of all of our creative energies to write songs and compose music and sing it skillfully. He is worthy of our devotion, rendering to him honor. He's worthy of our hearts being caught up in adoration. He's worthy of our time and our energy, which, which it takes to stop everything, just to sing to the Lord. I tell you this morning, even if there were no preaching here this morning, it's worth your time and energy to come to sing praise to the Lord. Take note, this singing is only about the Lord. He's the theme of this song. Moses is never even mentioned once. Pharaoh is only mentioned in passing. It's all about the Lord. And Moses doesn't go into how he feels about it all. He doesn't reflect on how God has met his needs or given him peace. He exalts the Lord who is majestic in his holiness and awesome in his glory, working wonders. Not only is the song completely about the Lord, the song is sung to the Lord. It starts, I will sing to the Lord. And then beginning in verse 6, it's all in the second person. You, O Lord, you, you, who is like you? Dear friends, you know how much I love contemporary music as much as traditional music. But I tell you, we've passed a dangerous line in the church in recent years. God's people have largely turned the focus of our songs inward toward ourselves. We sing to express how good we feel about God. We sing to reflect our moods. Or worse yet, we sing to work ourselves into some mood, thinking that that fuzzy, warm feeling is worship. But worship is not a feeling to be chased after. Worshiping, worship is rendering to God the glory and the honor that he deserves. 
It is singing of his mighty acts, singing to him, ascribing glory where glory belongs, whether we feel like it or not, though we are often filled with joy in the process. Our goal, though, is simply to sing to the Lord. What a wonderful text. But what a strange sermon this morning. We've spent our time talking about the words of a song. But songs aren't there to be dissected and outlined and analyzed. Songs are there to be sung. Why are we singing this song? Well, unfortunately, it's not in our book. No one has taken the time to take the words of this song and put it to some kind of music where we can sing it, at least not in this hymnal. But as I look through our hymnal, I find that there's something that comes close. Psalm 68 is filled with these same great themes. God destroys his enemy. But God brings his people safely home. And God calls us to sing his praise. So because I don't have a version of Exodus 15 to sing, we're going to sing Psalm 68. And you find it in your books on number page 71. Let's find it. And let's sing it. Best we can come to singing Exodus 15. Number 71. Let's sing it. Stand as we sing. Stand up, O God, be present now, and all who hate you, let them run like driven smoke, like melting wax, bound for destruction, doomed to die. But let the righteous sing and dance, and sing and dance and shout, for joy, for he who rides upon the clouds is coming as he came of old. His justice vindicates the oppressed, he frees the prisoner, brings him home. Stand up, O God, be present now, and we will sing and shout for joy. Stand up, O God, be present now, as once on Sinai you were heard by those who left the prison's chain who crossed the sea and faced the sand. They ate the manna, drank from springs provided by your gracious love. 
They watched as mighty armies fled, and so they gained the promised land. Now marching on to Zion's mouth, we see the heavenly host descend. Stand up, oh God, be present now, and we will sing and shout for joy. Stand up, oh God, be present now, and we, your people, will rejoice, for you have saved us from the pit, for you have brought us back from death. So to your holy place we come with choirs and music young and old. Rebuke the godless, cast them down till humble they for mercy call. Then men shall listen for your voice riding in all your ways and past our understanding. You are holy, you are just, you are majestic, you are sovereign. Lord, may we not ever reduce you to something less than that. But may we honor you in holy fear. And yet, Lord, thank you that you've displayed to us your grace in Jesus. And that in him, our fear of you is turned to love. And I pray that that would be our experience, not that we bring you down, but that we see that you've lifted us up to yourself. So Lord, may we never stop singing of your greatness, and singing of your grace. May the sweet uh, music of praise be always in our hearts, often on our lips. Controlling influence in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.